everyone! Welcome to this episode of Grim Tales from the Garden State, the show where we follow the dark stories and twister threads that have all been woven in the great state of New Jersey. I'm your host, Mrs. B, and today's story is about the murders of Dee Dee Rosenthal and Rebecca Wirtz by a man named Charles Reddish. Two young women who were total strangers starting new lives that ended way too soon at the hands of the same person. Sometimes it's the people closest to you or the people you barely notice who end up having the most detrimental impact on your life. But before we get started today, let's hear our terrifying tidbit. According to thezebra.com, only 2% of burglars attempt to break into people's home via the second floor. A little over 65% of thieves know their victims, which makes sense because burglars usually rob people within a few miles of their homes. Over 60% of assaults happen during break-ins, and 88% of break-ins and burglaries are not premeditated. They usually just suddenly decide to break into someone's home. This case actually crosses over into three different counties. Burlington, Camden, and Salem. Part of the story takes place in Cherry Hill, so that means this is our second story here. The Fred Newlander case also happened here, but the Dee Dee Rosenthal case occurred a couple of years prior, and the Rebecca Wirtz case happened about a year after. But aside from these major crimes, Cherry Hill is an A-plus town. The other crimes took place in Burlington Township. According to Niche.com, Burlington Township is an A-minus town, so it's on pretty similar standing. It's a sparse suburban town, so the nearly 24,000 residents don't feel like they're stacked on top of each other. Good schools, diversity, and solid job prospects with access to Philly. This is also where the headquarters of the Burlington Coat Factory are located. What more could you ask for? Dee Dee Rosenthal was a 32-year-old Canadian woman who had settled in Cherry Hill, Camden County to teach children with autism and developmental delays. She absolutely loved her job and felt like this was what she was meant to do. Back in Canada, Dee Dee lived with her brother Blaine and their mother, and they all just adored each other. He always looked out for her and held her close to his heart. Although the family was nervous for Dee Dee to start her new life in New Jersey, they couldn't be prouder of her for pursuing her dreams. The only real blemish of sorts on in Dee Dee's life was that she was seeing a married man. He was one of the maintenance workers at Somerset Apartments where she lived. She knew it wasn't morally right, but to her, he was just someone to hook up with as she adjusted to her new life in the U.S. Dee Dee worked at the Elwyn Institute in Vineland, and she rarely ever missed a day. On Wednesday, February 27th, 1991, six months after she moved to Cherry Hill, Dee Dee hadn't shown up for work in three days. This wasn't like Dee Dee. She was very responsible and wouldn't just disappear like this. No one had heard from her since the Friday before when she made plans with her friend Sherry for Sherry's birthday. Dee Dee hadn't called out of work either, so her co-workers called the police and filed a missing persons report. When the police arrived at Dee Dee's apartment on the 7th and top floor, they noticed a pile of newspapers on her doormat. The front door was unlocked, but there were no signs of forced entry. Her apartment was clean. The bed was made, no dishes in the sink, no signs of a robbery or anything untoward. They found her suitcases which were packed away and her keys were laying on the kitchen counter. Her planner was even still open next to her phone. As the police moved through the apartment, they noticed that her balcony door was unlocked and her cat had been trapped outside. For anyone wondering, I'm pretty sure the cat survived. There was virtually no physical evidence for the police to begin their investigation. Even her planner didn't have any indication that she had plans to go anywhere in the near future, and detectives assumed she was home last Friday night. The police did find an ATM receipt in her purse from 4.46 p.m. on Friday. She apparently had $680 in her account, and she withdrew $80. They also questioned Dee Dee's downstairs neighbor, who told police that around 4 a.m. she heard a loud thud coming from Dee Dee's apartment. The neighbor was frightened, but assumed that Dee Dee had just fallen out of bed. Then she heard her balcony door open and close, but couldn't remember if that happened before or after she heard the thud. Even this gave the police pretty much nothing. 
The only thought they had was that she was probably taken from her apartment against her will. The cops contacted Dee Dee's friend Sherry, whom she made plans with for her birthday. Sherry expected to see Dee Dee that upcoming week, so it was a shock when Dee Dee disappeared. She knew her friend was not the type to just abandon her commitments and responsibilities. She also told police that her planner was like her Bible and she never left the house without it. Sherry was the one who made the police privy to Dee Dee's maintenance man boyfriend, who they immediately pinned as their first suspect. This guy had full-time access to Dee Dee's apartment because of his job. Because he was married, maybe killing Dee Dee was his way of erasing evidence of the affair. The cops questioned him, but he denied being involved in the disappearance. He also had a solid alibi that he was traveling with his family the day Dee Dee went missing. The police go through all the people that would have had access to Dee Dee's apartment, so they interviewed all the people who worked at the complex. They then turned their focus on another maintenance worker, who they deemed especially shifty. Women around the building complained that he was creepy around them, earning him the nickname Crazy Eddie. He didn't have a criminal record, but when people talked to him, they felt like something was off about him. He told police that he was hanging at home with his girlfriend at the time of the disappearance and claimed that he had no idea Dee Dee had gone missing. The authorities proceeded to send out search parties, cadaver dogs. Nothing was uncovering any additional information. All they had was a missing person and no evidence of anything that happened to her. This was becoming a cold case. Dee Dee's brother, Blaine Rosenthal, was not accepting this as his sister's fate. He flew from Canada to New Jersey a total of 67 times to make sure that the investigation was moving. He was admittedly obsessed with the case. He constantly thought about where his sister could be or what could have happened to her, and even hired a private detective. He emptied his bank account and lost most of his friends, but nothing came of his efforts. Blaine said he regrets none of it because he just wanted to find his sister. He'd live on the street if it meant getting to the bottom of her case. Even though there were multiple alleged sightings of Dee Dee living life like normal elsewhere, like Florida, they were ultimately dismissed because her friends and family knew she would have said something before leaving her life behind. Let's fast forward over four and a half years later to October 6, 1995, 20 minutes away in Burlington Township, Burlington County. 14-year-old Jennifer Wirtz is ecstatic because she and her mom Rebecca were moving back in with her grandmother that day. Jennifer would be close to all of her friends again and she would be back where she felt like she really belonged. Rebecca, on the other hand, was struggling with her relationship with a man named Charles Reddish. There were always a lot of tense arguments and embittered fights between the two. After Jennifer's field hockey game, she approached her mother's car, but she realized that Charles was in the driver's seat, which angered her. In reality, though, she was actually just terrified of how Charles convinced Rebecca to change their plans that had seemed to be set in stone. Now the plan was to go to his mother's house so they could have one final meal while the girls still lived in the area. Jennifer had a bad feeling about this, but she had no other choice but to get in the car. Once they got to his mother's house, he said he had to borrow the car to run some errands. Jennifer fought with her mom because there was no good reason as to why they were just left standing around. They could have been at grandma's by now. Hours passed and no one knew where Charles was. Around 9pm, Jennifer decided to go take a nap and she told her mom to wake her up once Charles got back so that they could finally leave. She napped for a couple of hours and a loud thud woke her up. Charles was hitting her mother. She wasn't screaming, but Jennifer could hear the punching and ran downstairs to try to get him to stop. Then, he turned his aggression towards Jennifer, and he started beating her up and screaming at her. Rebecca's arm and jaw were broken, and she was barely conscious on the couch. Charles put a sheet over Jennifer after he grabbed a hatchet and started murdering her mother. Afterwards, he took Jennifer upstairs and sexually assaulted her. Charles then made a bone-chilling request. He wanted Jennifer to kill him because he couldn't spend his life in jail, so he wanted this traumatized 14-year-old to stab him to death with a knife. He murders his girlfriend, assaults her daughter, and is fully aware of the life-ruining consequences that are coming his way. I guess he figured that Jennifer would be angry enough with him to do it, but she refused. So she said calling the police was the best option, they might even cut him a deal because he was insane at the time. 
Again, this man seemed very lucid during this time, but this was also a child essentially bargaining for her life. Now, for this part of the story, sources differ. Some sources say Charles called the police directly, while others say he called his mother first to tell her that he had killed Rebecca, who then called the police. Either way, after he made the call, he told Jennifer that they had to go stand outside and wait for the police. She waited at the top of the stairs while he went to the living room, where he threw a sheet on Rebecca's body. Then, they sat on the porch and waited for the police to come. Charles was arrested and charged with murder and sexual assault of a minor. He claimed that Rebecca's death was the culmination of an intense argument about his alcohol and drug abuse. Jennifer was taken into custody, just completely mentally destroyed, in shock, and despondent. Also, Charles's name was Charles Edward Reddish, aka Crazy Eddie. After Charles was apprehended and the police figured out that he was the Crazy Eddie that worked in Dee Dee's building, he took them through his version of the night. The first event was a cocaine party. After around midnight, he returned home to his apartment, which was also in the Somerset Apartments, and was hanging out with his girlfriend. I'm not sure if this girlfriend was Rebecca Wirtz or another girl. Around 1 or 2 a.m., he got up and left the apartment to get up onto the roof of the building. Charles had randomly decided that he was going to sexually assault Dee Rosenthal that night. He had seen her around the complex, knew which apartment was hers, and figured that tonight was the night. The way the apartment was set up, there was a little ledge over Dee Dee's balcony since she lived on the top floor. So Charles hopped down from the roof onto her balcony and got inside because the door wasn't locked. Although this makes sense because who would break into a seventh floor, you know, balcony? This is a perfect reminder to always lock your doors and windows, even if you're on the top floor. You never know all the ways that people can get you. Anyway, Charles got into Dee Dee's bedroom and since he startled her awake, she saw him and gasped. He realized that she recognized him and decided he needed to kill her then. He smothered her to death by covering her mouth and nose with his hand. There was a minor struggle and she fell off the bed, which was the thud that the downstairs neighbor heard. Charles then put Dee Dee back on the bed and looked around for things to steal. He stole $80 from her purse and left the body behind. Two nights later, he came back to the apartment to dispose of her body. He wrapped her up in her sheets, then made her bed so it looked like nothing had happened. After loading Dee Dee into his equipment wagon so he could get her out of the building without being noticed, Charles pushed the wagon onto a residential street where her body was then transferred to Charles's girlfriend's car. So maybe this was Rebecca because he was known to borrow her car. He then proceeded to drive 20 miles south to Pensgrove, Salem County, where he dumped her in a dredge site near the Delaware River. By the time the police got this story, over four years later, Dee Dee would have probably been under around 100 feet of waste, rendering her body unable to be discovered. Police still tried to find her, but they just couldn't. Charles Reddish was charged with the murder of Dee Dee Rosenthal and Rebecca Wirtz and the rape of Jennifer Wirtz. In New Jersey, you can't convict a person just on their confession alone, so investigators needed to thoroughly comb through his confession to see if they could match anything he said to the evidence they found. They had the newspapers piling up, the open front and back doors, the $80 he stole, the receipt. He took the exact amount of money she pulled from the ATM, meaning he was both in her apartment and the last person to see her alive. Prosecutor Albright asked for the death penalty, but even getting a conviction would be hard with this type of case. There was still no body and the regular type of evidence typically presented in court. Also, Charles recanted his confession. The defense argued that there wasn't a murder at all. People had seen Dee Dee living happily all around the country. One of them had to be her, I guess. The prosecutor had to prove that Dee Dee wasn't the type of person to just up and leave and was tired of her life. The only way to do this was to build Dee Dee's character by bringing her friends and family to the stand to vouch for her honesty and integrity. Prosecutor Albright said after the trial, you don't normally get to talk about the qualities of the victim. I got to tell the jury about the life Dee Dee led and the type of life she wanted to lead. 
In December of 1998, Charles Edward Reddish, age 37, was found guilty of capital murder and rape of a minor. A couple months later, in March of 1999, he was sentenced to 55 years in prison. After that, Charles was convicted of Dee Dee's murder, which luckily the prosecution was able to do without a body. Although he was originally sentenced to death, he got a new trial because the jury was given incorrect instructions when deciding their verdict. His attorneys took this as an opportunity to arrange a plea deal, which they achieved, leaving Charles to be sentenced to essentially life in prison. He is serving out his sentence at the New Jersey State Prison in Trenton and will be eligible for parole in October 2080, meaning he would be released around age 120. Blaine Rosenthal got to visit his sister's final resting place where he just cried and cried. He misses her laughs the most and said she had him wrapped around her finger. He started an organization called the Dee Dee Rosenthal Foundation, which offers resources for women to escape physical and emotional abuse. Jennifer Wirtz understands the Rosenthal's pain. They all lost someone special to them at the hands of Charles Reddish. She was sad that her mother has had to miss all of the milestones in her and her daughter's lives. Charles had the nerve to confess his sins and find God in prison so he could be forgiven for all that he's done, but he obviously had no thoughts of God when he did all those heinous crimes. After he killed Rebecca, he told investigators he killed the only woman who ever loved him, which I guess goes to show how incredibly lost this man was. First and foremost, you guys know I gotta give a shout out to the people who give their all to finding their loved one. Blaine Rosenthal was a real one. Familial love is such a central tenet in my life, so I know if either of my sisters went missing, I would not know sleep. Just the thought of anything ever happening to them makes my heart stop. So I completely understand Blaine's devotion to finding his sister. Also, I sincerely hope Jennifer got therapy and is living a happy life with her girls. But that is going to be it for me today. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please don't forget to rate, follow, and share this podcast. I would love it if you followed me at GrimTalesGS on Instagram to keep up with what I'm up to. I will see you all next week. Goodbye.